Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week we are exploring a topic that blends together maritime history and literature by exploring the tales of both Robinson Crusoe and Alexander Selkirk. Robinson Crusoe was a novel published in 1719 by Daniel Defoe that supposedly came from the pen of Crusoe himself and told the story of how he was marooned and spent 28 years on a deserted island in the Caribbean. The book was enormously successful and is widely considered to be the beginning of realistic fiction as a genre. Crusoe's tale was entirely plausible at a time when ships were regularly sailing from the northern hemisphere to the tropics, when ships were regularly getting wrecked, when pirates were regularly attacking them, when there was still so much to discover about the world's geography, and when the idea of a sailor finding himself accidentally or deliberately abandoned on a desert island made perfect sense. Now, this is where it really does get a bit muddy, so do pay attention. It's believed that the bones of Crusoe's story did not randomly pop up into Defoe's brain, remarkable as that brain was for being able to imagine the most splendid of tales, but that it was actually based on a true story, the story of Alexander Selkirk, a Scottish mariner who found himself cast away on a desert island for four years and four months, a decade before Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe. Now, Selkirk is a fascinating character, and his history is absorbing regardless of the fact that he found himself marooned. He was involved in buccaneering and privateering. He rounded the Horn and sailed into the Pacific, where he attacked Spanish ships and towns. And it was here, in the Pacific, on an island known as Masaltierra, 400 miles off the coast of Chile, that Selkirk chose to be marooned. To find out more about these two brilliant stories, the way that Defoe intertwined them and the way that we now believe they are intertwined, I spoke with Professor Andrew Lambert, Lawton Professor of Naval History in the Department of War Studies at King's College. In 2010, Andrew joined a German expedition to Massaltierra, now known as Robinson Crusoe Island. 
The expedition focused on the relationship between the fictional character of Crusoe, the real character of Selkirk, and the development of British global strategy that culminated in the arrival of Commodore George Anson's naval expedition in 1741. Here is Andrew, and as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Andrew, thank you very much for having me around your wonderful house. I've just looked in your study and I want to stay here and look at all of those magnificent books. Um, Let's talk about Robinson Crusoe and Alexander Selkirk. So I suppose my first question is, knowing a little about Daniel Defoe, he was quite a shrewd chap. What do you think he was up to by writing a book about about Robinson Crusoe? What, what What was he trying to get across here? Right. Defoe is writing a lot around this time about empire, about trade expansion, about commercial development, about a a maritime expansive British worldview. This is the the aftermath of the War of the Spanish Succession. The British believe that they're about to go on a global project. They've been looking to get into the Pacific to find ways of opening up this great untapped market of Spanish America. This, of course, is going to be a hundred-year project. Defoe thought it would be over rather sooner. It's not until the Spanish Empire collapses that the British actually break that market open. So he's writing about economic activity, and in many ways his day job is is promoting an expansive commercial settlement. But at the same time, he's come up with the very modern understanding that there are more exciting ways of getting the message across. So Crusoe, in some ways, is profiting from Defoe's astonishingly broad view of global geography, global trends. He's talking about piracy, talking about corsairing in the Mediterranean, and he's situating this in the middle of what is the most successful genre of publishing at the time, which is buccaneer travel narrative. Uh, So he's read all of the buccaneer travel narratives. They're in his library, we know this. Uh, And what he's doing is synthesizing them into a tale which has a strong moral element to it. Uh, It's promoting a sense of Britishness. But of course, it's very subversive because Crusoe himself is actually half German. Uh, His family name is not Crusoe, it's Kreuznacker. Um, as he admits on page one. So he's subverting something at the very same time that he's creating it. So we're led to believe that Crusoe is kind of exceptional English character. But of course, from page one, he's not. He's something else. He's doing a lot of other things. He's involved in things which are not that exemplary. And while he ends up doing good things, uh, there are other things in the story which are not so good. So I think Defoe is subverting the genre. I think he's come across these narratives. And of course, the Buccaneers are astonishing. Almost all of them are literate. And some of them are very clever indeed. And they write very well. Let's just talk about the Buccaneers and just make it clear how buccaneering is different to piracy, is different to privateering. Who were these Buccaneers? These are people who are operating in in the Caribbean at a time when there is lawless space. There is ungoverned space in which you can operate at the margins of legality, uh, you can occupy territory which no sovereign state has claimed. You can buy and sell products which you harvest from those islands. So the buccaneers are, are purveyors of smoked meat or bucan. 
So, and then they go off on a rampage, and the buccaneers who matter for Defoe's story are the guys who crossed the Isthmus of Panama and opened up a new venture, buccaneering in the, in the Pacific. And some of them end up on Juan Fernandez Island, um, later known as Robinson Crusoe's Island. Let's talk about this island then. Right. So off the coast of Chile, um, why was it strategically significant? I mean, it's, it's no, no random consequence that, that no. Selkirk ended up there, is it? No. Robinson Crusoe's island, or Mazafuera, uh, Mazatierra, the two islands. Uh, Mazatierra, the nearer one, is, is Robinson Crusoe's island. The other one is actually named for Selkirk, who was never on it because it's almost inhospitable uh, and nobody goes that way. It's important because the Humboldt Current means that sailing south from Peru to Chile is very difficult. And Juan Fernandez, the man who found it, worked out that if you went two, three hundred miles offshore, you could pick up a better wind and a better current and you could make that journey much quicker. Mm. So it was discovered as part of um, a coastal uh, transit expedition which needed to make better time from Calao down to Valparaiso. Having found it, the Spanish landed on it, they intermittently lived on it, even the Jesuits lived on it, but it's very small. And the Spanish did what they always do, which is dump some goats on it. Mm. And the Just goat... in case some sailors come by. Exactly. Yeah, the goat meat is, uh, is good stuff, um, apparently. Unfortunately, the goats then ate the island, um, <laughs> which, had an all, which had essentially a unique ecosystem, and they managed to eat most of it. Uh, there are very few bits of it left, um, although efforts are being made to preserve some of it. But nobody in the Spanish world wanted to live there. Even the Jesuits weren't there and they couldn't put up with living on this tiny little island. Too the... small or was it intemperate or just, just too isolated? It's very, very isolated. There is not much to do and today there's probably slightly less to do. Uh, it has no communications um, until the modern age. So it's just not a place where continental people feel at home. It is the last place on earth. And if that's what you're looking for, it's perfect. Yeah, well, Defoe was looking for that as much yeah. as anyone else, wasn't yes. he? Yes. I reckon he was, it rubbed his hands with glee when he heard the story of Alexander Selkirk. He did. And if you live in Stoke Newington, which is a bit rough and tumble even then, I'm sure... Was that where Defoe lived? Same, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He lived in just opposite the church in Stoke Newington. Which was ironic because, of course, he wasn't churchgoer, he was a dissenter. Um, but so Crusoe is a compound of many stories written by men like Lionel Wafer, William Dampier, um, and many of the others. Defoe is using these and he's, he's filtering out some gold from these many hackneyed stories. And there are bits of all of the stories in the book. Uh, there are things that you can link into. There's a famous scene in, in Crusoe where Man Friday meets his father on the beach and they then perform a ritual dance of, of greeting. And this is straight out of Dampier's account. And it's an account of a Mosquito Indian who was with the buccaneers because they always took these excellent fishing and hunting men with them, meeting another man from his tribe on the beach on Juan Fernandez. Um, and it emphasizes something else which a lot of people mistake. Man Friday is not an African, he's a Nicaraguan Indian. 
And these are the people who are engaged with the buccaneers in their enterprises. They're an essential part of the crew. Without them, you go hungry. These people are much better at fishing and hunting than any of the buccaneers. So that has to be established. So when you read the book, you read the description of Man Friday, and he's quite clearly from Nicaragua. He's a Nicaraguan mm. Native American. But Robinson Crusoe's Island is not the scene of the book. The book is actually set on an island which doesn't exist off the mouth of the Orinoco. Yeah. Because Defoe is connecting us back to Walter Raleigh. He's saying this is the beginning of the British Empire and this is the location from which the British Empire moves out. It's Raleigh's ideas, it's Raleigh's vision that he's, he's using as the kind of lodestone to, to guide the future. And so for the it's a British imagination, the, the link with the Tudors was to the, to the Caribbean, to, to the, you know, the um, east coast. Yes, that's where, that's where the money is. Um, Raleigh's vision is, is very straightforward. Let's find the gold, use the money, defeat the Spanish, and become the world's most powerful country. Mm. Um, Defoe is playing with that, but that reference to Raleigh is really important. Why was he so obsessed with Raleigh and, and, uh, instead of others? Because Raleigh has written the text which sets out what a British empire should be. And Raleigh is now in print, and Defoe has the text in his library. Again, once you have man's library list, you, you've got almost a map of his mind. And in Defoe's case, it's, it's very, very obvious what he's reading. So you can deconstruct his, his habits and his, his means of thinking. At the same time, he's writing great books saying, we need to go to this Juan Fernandez Island and use it as a base to move forward into the Pacific. Richard Hawkins, Hawkins learns about the island when he's captured after his, uh, when he's in the South Pacific. He doesn't use it as a base because nobody in Britain knows about it. He learns about it while he's in captivity. But once Hawkins is published, everybody else is looking for this island. The Dutch use it in the 1620s and the British are thinking about using it. The buccaneers then do use it extensively right the way through. Uh, to the marooning of Selkirk uh, mm. and then his recovery. Let's go to Selkirk then, yeah. to the, this true story mm. that it's all, it's all based upon. Um, what do we know about his, his early life? Did he, did he come from complete obscurity? <laughs> yeah. The great thing about Selkirk is, of course, he's not English. He's, he's a Scot. He's only become British you know, while he was actually on the voyage that saw him <laughs> marooned on the island. He, he, left, Brit he left England uh, as a Scotsman and a foreigner, and he returned as a British subject. Um, Give us some dates. What, what dates are we talking here? Uh, 1680s through to 1720, when he died off the west coast of Africa. So he got back, spent all his money, um, got involved in a fairly complex um, relationship, almost certainly married twice, um, fled to sea, caught, the, caught one of the dread diseases of the Bight of Benin and died. Um, the great legend that Defoe stole his notes and, and that's all that the book is, is complete and utter hogwash. Mm. Um, Defoe was far too clever to need to steal anybody's stuff. <laughs> uh, he, he made this up from a lot of different sources. Uh, and the Selkirk narrative is pretty short. He went on the island, he got very remorseful, very desperate, very sad. And Let's just take it back a step. What was he doing out there in the first place? So. Selkirk is one of the crew of a buccaneering voyage which goes very, very badly wrong. 
he falls out with the captain, who he believes is substandard. Uh, he is a serious professional mariner himself, so he has a, some justification for this. And he thinks the ship is going to sink and that they will all die. So he says, no, I'd rather stay on the island of Juan Fernandez, where we are now, than go to sea in this rickety ship with this dimwit captain. Yeah. And he's proved absolutely right. The ship does sink and many of the crew drown and the rest end up uh, mining for silver at Potosi, which is probably ah, the worst they're, fate they're for, captured. A, for a Christian Britain captured at by the, the time. Spanish. Oh, dear. You could possibly imagine. So instead, he lives a very lonely life on the island um, with only a few goats and other, other animals for company um, and quite literally forgets how to talk. After about four years, he's, when he meets some some Englishman, he has real trouble expressing himself. Mm. Uh, it takes him several days to recover his, his language. Mm. But when they get there, he's, you know, he's, he's got the island under control. And I, I was there for a month, and eventually we worked out where he camped out. Mm. There's a great story that he lived up on the top of the mountain and he was looking out to sea. Um, I've done that walk several times. He didn't live up there. There's nothing to eat up there. There's not much water. And the view from the top of the mountain doesn't give you any prospect of the place that a sailing ship would come from. Yeah, so it's, that's it's, his priority. <laughs> yes, it's a complete non-sequitur. There's a Spanish guard post up there from the 1740s, but it's, it's not. Selkirk lived very near the beach, just behind a ri some rising ground, in a unique place on the island where the soil produces some very interesting white grass, which he used to stuff his mattress with. Right. but doesn't produce trees. It's too wet for trees. Everywhere else is forested. Right. So he's got this tiny little camp where he's, he's got his, his livestock corral. He's able to grow vegetables. So he's got some goats because the Spanish had left some goats. He's he got grew goats. some veg because he knew how to do it. Yeah, and uh, he lives on obviously on goats, goats too. When the ship turns up, it's Woods Rogers' expedition that turn up. So, Quilly, who's Woods Rogers? Woods Rogers is the last of the great buccaneers. He sets off on a privateering expedition and he manages to get into the Pacific and make serious money. The voyage then collapses into legal business, which profits the London lawyers rather than the men who were on the expedition. But he picks up Selkirk and Selkirk... Do we know why he was going there? Did he know Selkirk was on the island? He had no idea. Um, no, Rogers doesn't know that, but he knows that the island is meant to be uninhabited and a useful place. Yeah. Dampier, of course, went there three times, and he, on one occasion, they left behind a man on the island, the Mosquito Indian, and the next time an English ship turned up there, Dampier was on it again, and they picked up the same fellow. Right. So the castaway story has two bases. Mm. Both Man Friday and Crusoe were castaways, but at separate times, sure. as it were. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are, there are connections there. But Crusoe is not Selkirk. Selkirk is a, an almost monosyllabic professional mariner who is not thinking about creating a grand empire or going on great voyages. Yeah. And he was never enslaved by the Barbary Corsairs either. Yeah. So again, at, at every step, Defoe is subverting the basic story and he's creating a different story. And you have to read it more than once really to pick up all of the things that he's trying to do. He really is you know, trying to create something else. And if you read it alongside his work on economic expansion, so in the economic expansion books, he talks about this, this island and how important it is for controlling the Pacific. 
in Crusoe, we don't get into the Pacific at all. We're in the Caribbean and we have other problems in the Caribbean which involve the Spanish and religious questions and a bit of cannibalism. Mm. Um, there's no cannibalism on Juan Fernandez because there's nobody to eat. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Did you find any um, archaeological evidence of Selkirk's camp? We did. We were convinced that we found where the camp was. There is only really one place where it could be because we know that as the Woods Rogers expedition sails into the bay, and there's only one bay with a decent anchorage, that's where the water is, that's where you can get some shelter, that a fire was lit on the beach and they went ashore and, and that's where they found Selkirk. They walked to his camp and it was no more than 20 minutes. Mm. That was not walking up the hill to the lookout point, sure, yeah. which is a it's kind of Victorian fiction. It was close, and they describe it, and we found this place. Um, didn't find much archaeology there for obvious reasons, but it is an archaeological site because the Spanish fortified it. Uh, they built a lookout post up the hill. Um, there was also a major naval battle there in 1915. Mm -hmm. Uh, German cruiser Dresden is still at the bottom of the bay. It was put by HMS Kent and HMS Glasgow. Yeah, and we have covered that in the Mariners Mirror podcast yeah. for you listeners, so do go yeah. check that out. Oh, yeah. And the shells that didn't hit the Dresden are still in the cliffs. Oh, they? Yeah, the ships went into the bay, so they didn't. the overs didn't go into the village. Um, if you walk past the cemetery to the western end of the bay, you'll see a, a, a whole series of 16-inch rounds stuck in the cliff. You can still see the copper driving bands at, yeah. on the bottom end of the shells. So it's it's a place with quite a lot of history. And it was then visited over and over again. But by certainly 1800, it, the association with Crusoe was strong. There was a very strong sense that Crusoe is set on this island. But of course, everybody is, is reading and conflating rather than reading and, and respecting the text. So... It reaches a point where everybody's coming to look for Crusoe's cave. Um, Selkirk never had a cave. 
you know, <laughs> it's so confusing. This, this is a Defoe <laughs> yeah. invention. So Defoe has given uh, Crusoe a cave. There's plenty of places you could have a cave, and eventually some American miners heading to San Francisco in 1849 basically thought they'd found it. So they kept digging and they created one. And ever since, everybody thinks that there is actually a cave, and it's this one. Uh, it's not. It was made by Americans who thought there was a cave, and, and because they were miners, they'd come with pickaxes and they yeah. hacked it out. And more recently, an American uh, with plenty of money has come along and, and dug for Lord Anson's treasure, which is also meant to be there. Um, Anson didn't have any treasure when he was at the island. The treasure comes much, much later off the coast of the Philippines. Yeah. Let's just talk about Anson quickly, actually. Yeah. But this is, it is interesting. So there's someone who's gone into the Pacific. Yes. And I'm wondering whether there's a bit of a problem with British maritime history in our understanding of British activity in the Pacific, whether it's so focused on discovery and cook and yeah. Anson. About, there's, there's so much that's missed, isn't there? Well, I think there's a lot that's missed about, particularly about Anson anyway. Um, why was Anson given that command? Because he's a seriously good astronomer. Mm. His cousin, uh, Lord Macclesfield, second Earl of Macclesfield, is the leading astronomer in early Georgian England. And he went to the same school as Anson, and the two of them are both developing astronomical studies in Britain. They're both members of the Royal Society. That's why he sent, just as Cook was sent to, to take the transit of Venus at Tahiti as an astronomer, uh, as well as a navigator. If you look at what Anson does, it's quite clear that he has a program for this voyage. It goes badly wrong, as we know, but Juan Fernandez Island comes to their rescue. And they're looking for it. They don't happen upon it randomly. This is meant to be the refreshment stop. They get there in a poor condition, but they are saved by the island. The other thing we found when we were there is, is Anson's camp. Again, right. nobody bothered to look for it. And there's a wonderful drawing in one of the non-Anson accounts of the voyage showing the camp and the, the centurion anchored in the bay. And we ended up standing on the exact same spot. And I actually put a photograph of it in the book. And it turns out there's the obvious thing they need is water. And there's a stream right there. And then we were there and somebody was digging a hole to bury some rubbish and they came across what was quite clearly the forge from the Anson expedition with bits of scrap iron and a lot of burnt material and which had just been covered over by soil. Mm. Uh, so this is where they men mended all the gear on, on, the, on the Centurion while they were at, uh, at Juan Fernandez. We know where Anson camped out. Um, it's now called Lord Anson's Valley. Um, and the convenience store on the island is called the Lord Anson Store. So when Anson gets back to Britain, what's he do? He oversees the writing of the first essentially official naval history, which is a how to do this expedition better next time study. And he gets Benjamin Robbins in from the Royal Society to make sure it's absolutely right. Um, because the, the parson who was writing it really didn't understand some of the issues. But Anson understands all of this. He's thought about all of this, and he's very, very well equipped to deal with what this island has to offer. Mm. He's not surprised by anything. Um, and I think that's the key to his success. He's never underprepared. Yeah. And he manages to survive all of the terrors of that voyage in which almost everybody dies. 
And when they get home, nearly half the crew weren't on the initial voyage. Uh, they've been picked up along the way. Yeah. You know, the absolute the survivors of the uh, of the initial voyages are mostly younger officers and Anson, uh, and a, a few of the sailors. I don't know the answer to this, but when when did whaling start happening in the Pacific? Do you have, do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, head? yes, I do. Actually, because uh, that comes into both the this story because the whalers would stop at Juan Fernandez. Um, they would take some sandalwood, which they would sell in China, uh, or exchange in Vancouver, and then head up into the Bering Straits. Oh. Uh, but that's in the 1780s, and it's initially American, and then it's, Amer- then it's British, and we get a major uh, set of exchanges of ships during the War of 1812. USS Essex captures nearly a dozen British whalers out there, and uh, deposits some of them in the Marquesas and tries to get some of them home. Most of them are recaptured. Uh, and then the captain of the Essex, David Porter, writes an account of his voyage which sells the South Pacific to the Americans. Mm, yeah. So if the Americans have a Pacific vision, it's that of David Porter, who'd managed to lose his ship while disobeying his orders uh, and had a lot to try and avoid talking about. Yeah. And then you, you segue neatly into the whale ship Essex narrative. Yep. Um, which is that vessel which was sunk by a whale. By a whale. And that, of course, then segues into Melville and Moby Dick because he knew the son of the man who was actually on the whale ship Essex and wrote that narrative. And he had a, a very scarce edition of the whale ship Essex narrative. Yeah. And that's one of the key texts that he's using to write this great book which is an American Pacific in which the Pacific fights back. Um, and, <laughs> and the whaling goes on till the late, in the late 19th century up in the Bering Straits. Yeah. And it's largely an American industry from the 1820s onwards. But this whole area of the Pacific is still, it's very little known to, to a British audience, which is when Defoe's writing, which is, yeah. you know, he's, he's, I know he's setting it in the, in the, um, in the Caribbean, but this, the, the, the true story that it's basing on is, is a, it's a very little known part of the world, isn't it? It is. And for me, that was a large part of why the project to write the book went from being, I probably ought to write something about this to you know, turning into a, a, the book that I ended up writing. Um, you know, this, like several of the things I've written, it started with a voyage, and then, then the voyage in the library started after you, after I got back. So while I was there, my reading materials were confined to Crusoe, um, Anson's narrative. Um, that was about it, really. Yeah. So I had ample time to read and reread the materials and 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 deconstruct them as far as possible. Yeah. Uh, and start some questions running about why the materials work like this. Why is Anson's narrative so effective? Uh, Because it was very carefully controlled by Anson. It was very carefully delivered. And it was a runaway bestseller from from the start. And so was Crusoe. And part of that is the strangeness of the location. Here is this amazing little island which seems to be able to do everything that islands have to do in the British imagination. It's the very definition of strange but true. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, what I ended up writing was a book about the invention of insularity. You couldn't be further away from Britain. Uh, you couldn't be on a smaller island. And yet the, the English-British keep going back to this over and over again. 
the Challenger expedition in the 1870s, they went there. And almost all the scientists are Scotsmen, and they're swinging across the Pacific reading Crusoe and thinking they're going to meet Selkirk. So they're doing that thing. They're, mm. you know, they're, they're mixing up the man who actually lived there with somebody who never got that side of America. Um, uh, Lord Cochrane was there. It's quite interesting. The, sorry, just the, the, you know, the ignorance of, of how history kind of works, if, you know, if they're actually genuinely are believing this stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, history is what we think about the past, and it, that's never been what happened in the past. It's always been something that we've created. Um, you know, if you ask Vladimir Putin, he'll tell you that the Ukraine isn't a country. Um, that's a created history. Um, we, we do it all the time. We, we're endlessly doing it. And as soon as world events change, we try and justify them by, by finding patterns in the past, many of which don't exist. Mm. So people have been doing it for, for ages with the whole Crusoe and the Selkirk myth. Yes, and, and they keep on doing it because it's so much easier to, to peddle the same old story than it is to go back and ask some different questions. Mm. And I, you know, I was surprised how easy it was to have something new to say about such a familiar subject. Yeah, well, once you look into it, you just sort of knock on the door of it. It's it's one of those wonderful ones. I think it'd be brilliant for you know um, young postgraduates or undergraduates because you just read any any kind of story that comes out of the Selkirk Crusoe, it just raises questions. Why did that happen? Why is this? Whether it's about the the history of what happened or it's about the yeah. subsequent story of its fame. Yeah. And, you know, it's a book that is more famous now than it is read. So a Robinsoniad is, is, is any such narrative. But the critical thing for, for Defoe is the insularity of the setting. And that's at a time when the future of Britain is very much in debate. It's a new entity. It's only 1707. So by the time he's writing this, it's only 10 years old. You know, what prospects has it got? Well, it's just won a major war and defeated the French, so it's looking pretty good. And what did they get out of the war? Some naval bases, including the odd island like Menorca, and a trade treaty with the Spanish to open up Spanish America. And mm -hmm. you know, the South Sea Company is, a, is, a, is this great thing. And of course, shortly after Crusoe is published, it goes pop and <laughs> lots of other things change. But insularity is the key finding a world in which you don't need to dominate great continental spaces, but you can harvest the riches of the world from the sea, whether by plundering as a buccaneer or a pirate, uh, or indeed as a privateer like Woods Rogers, who's out there with a commission. There is, there is an interesting narrative as well about, about um, uh, Selkirk being um, strangely satisfied with his lot after, after four years of isolation, which I think is really interesting. I think... The narrative of Selkirk, the thing that really strikes home is he's been waiting for the ship to turn up and, and within a day of getting on the ship, he's somewhat regretting that he's leaving this place. <laughs> you know, he's, he's been at peace with himself on this island, which he, he clearly hasn't been at any other stage in his life. And his, his shipmates find him rapidly returning to old habits. Uh, and by the time he gets back to Britain, he's... he's entirely recovered from being an, an island castaway. I'd love to know how much this, the ships and ship life and the kind of the culture of being a seaman had changed in those four years, where, whether he got back on the ship and was like, oh, this is exactly as I knew it, or it was fundamentally different. I, it doesn't seem to have been very different. And there were people on the voyage who'd been on the voyage that he was on. <laughs> Old friends. Um, not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think Selkirk was a man who had 
many arguments with many people, uh, including himself, uh, and certainly with his God, um, whoever that was. So, he's a difficult man, and Defoe does not make Selkirk central to Crusoe. Crusoe is occupying a space that many buccaneers have carved out, and yet in reality he's not actually a buccaneer. He's, he's rising up through the social ranks. He's going to be quite somebody. And after the success of this, Crusoe writes a couple more, which nobody bothers to read because they're not very good, actually. Um, and Crusoe wanders off across Europe like Marlborough, conquering stuff and fighting wolves. And it's just, you know, the wonder of the, of the original book is completely lost in the sequel. Yeah. But we're all familiar with that in the 21st century. The sequel is, is always a disappointment, uh, whatever it is. And the way in which the story has been captured and retold and, and occupied by other people uh, and been used for very different purposes. So if we go back, this is about how English insularity is going to make Britain into a, a great power around the world. It's about maritime trade, it's about opening markets, it's about how the English have a way of dealing with problems which is not shared by everybody else. So all of the other groups are in this story need Crusoe to solve their problems for them. So he manages to reconcile the different peoples. He manages to reconcile different faiths. When he leaves the island, he leaves it under the government of some Iberian Catholics. You know, he's not holding out for a Protestant vision because that isn't Defoe's vision either. He's, you know, he's, he's not signed up to the established church. He's signed up to the, the other way of doing things. And he's fairly flexible too. Uh, we don't know whether somebody paid him to write some of the commercial material, um, but certainly he was moving in circles where that would have been likely. He was writing for the government yep. for much of his career, and he never seems to have been short of money. So there's a possibility. But this is something spun out of his very well-informed mind. He's creating a story on the basis of a great deal of information. He's not making it up he's bringing together things from different places to create something which is not a true story, but it's a story full of truth. Yeah, and there are so many different things that people can latch on to and, and yeah. it, it kind of, you know, will, will ring, ring true with them. It's yeah. the, it's, you know, all of the, all of the ingredients for a bestseller. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for sharing this wonderful story. No, my, my pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please find the Mariner's Mirror podcast on social media. We're on Instagram, of course, and we have just launched on TikTok. We've had nearly a quarter of a million views in the first five days alone. So do please enjoy the content we are posting there. Please also leave us a review if you are listening on iTunes. It's very easy to do. Scroll down in the app, hit five stars and tell us what you think. I will read out all reviews. Best of all, however, please join the Society for nautical research your modest subscription will help support this podcast it will get you four copies a year of the printed mariner's mirror journal and online access to the entire back catalog that's over a century's worth and it will help support the preservation of maritime heritage all great things that will help you sleep well in your hammock at night